Hello, and welcome to Mindful You at Naropa, a podcast presented by Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. I'm your host, David Devine, and it's a pleasure to welcome you. Joining the best of Eastern and Western educational traditions, Naropa is the birthplace of the modern mindfulness movement. Hello, today I'd like to welcome Jalyn Chapman to the podcast. Jalyn is an assistant professor and the director in an MFA in creative writing here at Naropa. And it's a pleasure to be speaking with you today, so welcome. Thank you. So how are you doing today? <laughs> I'm well, nice. yes, yes. It's a beautiful weather, it's springtime. Yeah, it's really beautiful yeah, outside. it's nice. Mm-hmm. And we're yeah. in a room just chatting, <laughs> awesome. So is there anything else you'd like to share about yourself? Yeah, I was just going to say that I'm from Colorado. Okay. I was born here. Not very many people can say that. Where in Colorado were you I was born in this tiny town on the western side, close to Utah, called Rangeley, Colorado. Oh, cool. Yes. I've been at Naropa for close to 10 years, actually. Awesome. Um, But I have only been in this position as assistant professor for three years. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. So (laughs) we talked before and you have a very interesting subject and I'm really excited to explore it. And what would that be? Yeah, I wanted to talk about text and image today. And just maybe to clarify, I'm thinking about images that are included in a book of poetry or in a novel. Okay. And maybe I would even say that, clarify it to even say that it could be books that use text as image as well. So not necessarily artist books or books that are art, but just, you know, books that include images in them. Say more about that. Like, what do you mean text as image? Like they're actually using writing to make an image? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think sometimes we take for granted that text is an image, you know, that Mm -hmm. letters are images. And so there are some writers, I mean, there are lots of book artists and maybe letterpress artists who are definitely very conscious of that. But for the most part, when you're just reading a book, we sort of take for granted that the text on the page is an image. And so there are some, I'm thinking of writers here who keep that in mind, even though the maybe in their book, the focus of the book is what the text is communicating. It's Mm -hmm. also thinking about text as an image. So like Rachel Blau Duplessis, she is a poet and a critic, but she also does these collage poems. So they're poems, but Mm. they're made from collage and it really emphasizes text. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to think that like each letter on its own is just an image and the combination of letters equals a word and then out of multiple words you get this sentence yes and out of it images yes and for the most i mean typically we read the text as if it's invisible you know we're just reading through it to get to the meaning yeah and so something that i think poetry does and some kinds of literature but definitely in more overt and obvious ways there are writers and artists who draw attention to the fact that it's 
they make it visible. They make something that typically is supposed to be transparent and taken for granted. They make that visible. Yeah. One book I'm thinking about is the Ram Dass Be Here Now, Mm -hmm. where his writing is really big and expressing himself fully through the letters and very journal writing style, not just just writing like a college paper or something. Yes. And in that great, that's great because those are instances of maybe, you know, including the process of writing in the mm-hmm. text rather than polishing it up, editing it, putting in a kind of uniform font size, you know, shipping it out. All of those things I think are valuable too, but but I think there is a kind of strain of writing that shows it could also be just showing like the handwriting yeah. or like the poet C.A. Conrad often capitalizes certain words yeah. to give them emphasis in a way that we don't typically do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. When do you think text and images were coming together in poetry? Like was Shakespeare using images in his writing any other like famous poets or was there like a moment in which the shift happened? That's a really good question. And there's probably someone who can answer this better than I can, but in some ways it probably has been always happening. One way that I can just distinguish this is that there's maybe a difference between, again, if we consider text image, but then we also consider the form that the text takes one could argue that it's always been happening. Like I think about even like there's this concept of the palimpsest that is often spoken about nowadays as a kind of theoretical concept of in which there are sort of multiple meanings that are coexistent. Mm -hmm. But I'm thinking about the poet Catullus who writes these poems and in the poems he actually addresses this idea of the palimpsest as the medium through which poetry is written. So it's the idea of taking a a writing surface and using it over and over again. So before there was paper, there was vellum. This is actually very difficult to make. We can't just have like a notebook full of vellum. And so it would just constantly (laughs) be reused. So you would write a poem and then you could write poems between in any of the open space. And now archaeologists will often look at these or archivists will look at these and Mm -hmm. be able to see that there's multiple writing on it. And Catullus actually talks about this in his poetry. Mm -hmm. So in some ways we could say that is an image, but William Blake is often cited as one of the first people to kind of do this in a really obvious way in his songs of innocence and experience. And he illustrates them. They're illustrated and his, the images that he uses are, are so profoundly beautiful. Sometimes when we're just in college or in high school, when we're reading these poems, Mm -hmm. they're extracted from their images and that doesn't seem right, but that's Mm -hmm. the way that I first encountered them. But more and more people are kind of paying attention to the illustrations that he included. Yeah. 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 It seems like the company of illustrations with pairing with the text kind of gives you more of an idea of what the artist is trying to convey. It can. It can. I mean, I think, and this is what's interesting to me, is that there are multiple ways of reading this. I don't, I I always want (laughs) to kind of shift away from like the intended way to read. I think we should acknowledge that, but 
there's lots of ways of reading a text and reading an image with a text. Can you give me some examples of like different ways of reading something? Yeah, I was thinking about this earlier today. So right now I'm working on some essays that have to do with mothering. And so one thing that I wanted to do was sort of bring together, not in the writing itself, but almost in a kind of to inspire my writing, I wanted to bring together images of the different mothers in my life. So my grandmother, my paternal grandmother, was adopted, given up for adoption, and then adopted by her father's parents. And um, so she really didn't have much contact with her mother at all. Um, And her mother died when she was in high school, I believe. But she also didn't have much contact with her because her grandparents didn't want her to have contact with her. She was, her mother was American Indian and Hispanic and, and also according to them sort of had this disreputable lifestyle. So, so she hasn't really been in her life. So this Mm -hmm. is the backstory. So my, I asked my aunt recently if she had any photographs of her, Rose is her name, and she sent these to me. And so I was thinking about how there are different ways to kind of read these photographs. One is that the photograph makes present something that is absent, Mm -hmm. which is true for any kind of photograph we have of a person or even of of an object. It's this person who is no longer here is now made present in the photograph by having the object of the photograph. But as, you know, a writer like Roland Barthes, who really theorized photography, he would also say that while we're making present this absent subject, the photograph itself also tells us that this subject is absent. So there's this like give and take where the absent thing is made present, but then the present thing reminds us of the absence. It's like a substitution. Yeah, it's a substitution. And the substitution, exactly, the substitution can is the substantial and significant thing, but it also reminds us of the thing that isn't there. Yeah. <laughs> and so <Fine>. the photo, <laughs> right. So the <laughs> photograph can, can be that thing mm-hmm. as well as the photograph represents our love for something or our, mm. we attach to it. We sometimes fetishize it. So th- those are maybe two ways of reading it, but I think another way of reading it is also the inability to actually represent. So there is this person who is absent from my life, absent from my grandmother's life, who's now made present and then absent. But it also shows me that I can never really get to her. I can't have her real body. I can't I can't know her. And so the image, yeah. I think, is also in some ways not just represent what it what it represents, but it can also represent the total inability to represent anything at all. Yeah. It's almost like with the text and with an image, that's the closest as you can get with something that is being in place of mm-hmm. the actualness of mm-hmm. whatever it is you're looking at. Yeah. And there's a kind of sadness in that too, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there could be beauty. There is. There I could think... be a myriad of spectrum of feelings that can come from it, depending on the subject matter, I guess. Yeah. Is where it's coming from. Yes. Interesting. You know, there there's much more that could potentially be said for that. But I think yeah. in the way that I'm using these photographs, that is to me, those are multiple readings of this mm-hmm. this one image. Yeah. 
So I was thinking about, does one of these ways communicate more potency? So if I was looking at an image, does that say more than a text would? Or, And I guess this is all subjective, but I'm just curious about your perspective on this question. How do you see each one informing you individually? So if you're just looking at an image, how does that inform you compared to just reading a text about this person? How do they show up differently for you? Like, what do you think it is? Yeah, I think that's a good question. You're asking about how I do it personally. And maybe I'll just say for a brief moment that I think that we live in a culture that has a lot of images. And Mm -hmm. so it often seems like an image gives more immediately than text does. Okay, I'm just thinking about the internet, for instance, and how image laden the internet is or how image laden most of our reading material is, you know, a magazine, for instance. And I think the idea is that the image gives more. It's more immediate. We have fluency in reading images in the way that we may not have fluency in reading text. But I also just want to undermine that, Mm -hmm. too. I think for me, that is true. I'm very attracted to images. I write primarily, and I don't make many images, but I'm really attracted to them when I'm writing. So it does come, there's just something very beautiful and delicious about looking at them. But I've actually find that if we are to read them, there is a kind of process of reading an image that does not come as quickly for me. And yet I really enjoy it. I enjoy reading images. And I think that that's a whole kind of process and there's potentially different kinds of approaches to reading an image. But for me, that that is more interesting. But so what, what was your question again? Because I feel like maybe I didn't <laughs> quite get to it. I was just kind of thinking, like, what is more effective and how how does each one communicate differently on yeah. their own? Maybe effective isn't... Yeah, it's like kind of the, like a subjective term, and it's, I guess, uniquely based to the person, mm-hmm. but how does an image speak to a person differently than a text would in, like, a general term? I guess in some ways I'm not... Totally sure. I mean, an an image can be more effective if, for instance, you're trying to illustrate, you know, the rise and fall of the stock market, for instance. I mean, most of us probably, I can say that I do not really understand like the (laughs) vernacular of the stock market, but I can pretty easily read an image of that. I can see that something's rising and falling. So that's extremely effective. Mm -hmm. There are other kinds of images that are extremely effective too. I mean, I'm just thinking about it in Longmont, somebody's car went out of control and they careened into the first bank. And I saw these images of the first bank and the tree that he mowed down. And that was actually very effective to see like this destruction that he, they created, but also that nobody was hurt. I mean, there was also, Mm. it was very effective in seeing that all of this had happened and nobody was hurt. So in some ways it is very effective I really like, there's a writer, W.G. Zabald, a German writer who's no longer living, but he uses images in his novels. And one of the things that I find so curious about his images is that they're often very pleasing. You know, some of them are very well composed. Some of them are, are actually just very amateur, but they're often very beautiful, very interesting. But I think one of the reasons that he uses is that uses them is that they're not actually effective. And I think his point 
is to show that some things really can't be represented. There's this kind of threshold of effectiveness that yeah. eventually fails. And he does that in both his writing and in the images that he uses. And to me, that's what's so kind of provocative and interesting, interesting. about him. Dancing on the line of threshold of what works and what doesn't. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, he's often writing about violence and destruction and the Holocaust. And so it's very, yeah. I think, apropos for him to yeah. to kind of find this threshold where there's something there's something ineffable. There's something that we can't that can't be represented. And that's kind of what I'm interested in when we get to that point where there's a failure. Yeah. Like where did it fail? What mm-hmm. was the moment? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So I'm I'm having this thought where we're talking about text and image. So a text is something you read and when you when you're literally reading it in your mind, you create an image of what's going on. Yes. But then if you see an image, you create a text within your mind. <laughs> That's so interesting. Yeah. I'm starting to notice there is a relationship between the two and your brain makes the other. I, you know, I don't want to speak for everybody, but I feel like this is a general sort of thing that happens with us people mm-hmm. in our minds is when we see an image, you create a story. When you read a story, you create an image. Mm-hmm. And so I'm starting to notice the relationship between these two. Yeah, I like that. I mean, in postmodern theory or even post-structuralist thought, I guess, mm-hmm. everything becomes text. So this word text is actually used in a very general way. Anything that can be read or interpreted is considered a text. Yeah. So, but what you're talking about, I think, in some ways exemplifies that, that there we're always kind of circulating among these different texts, whether it's an, an image that we read or a text that we imagine. I mean, the word imagine yeah. has image in it. Yeah, it's like externally given to us differently, but we can internalize something out of it. Mm-hmm. So, and it's how we internalize it differently you know, through the composition we're looking at mm. or reading or whatever. Mm-hmm. When does text and image have its place separately? When does, wh- like, when does an image say more than a text would? For instance, you're talking about the, like, kind of car crash in Longmont mm-hmm. where you understood it more when you saw mm-hmm. the images instead of, like, reading the article. Mm-hmm. So when, when are they mo- more potent than the other? Is there moments where they work well? Maybe to give an example of this, there is the John Berger who wrote a really wonderful book, Ways of Seeing, that is often taught in schools because it's such a sort of efficient distillation of the way text and image work. In this book, he has some textual essays that are illustrated with different images. And then between these, he has what I would just call image essays. One of the things that he talks about in this book is the difference between nakedness and nudity, because he's looking at a lot of Renaissance paintings where there are lots of nudes and naked people. And so one of the things that, and then he kind of digs into this idea um, by talking about the, the female body and objectification and the difference between a naked female body and a nude, which we see as a kind of genre of of painting. And so he has these image essays where he sort of 
begins, if I remember correctly, with nudes from Renaissance painting and sort of gradually starts to kind of come into the modern era with advertising that uses some of the the vernacular of these paintings. Yeah. So maybe some of the same shapes or the same colors or the same positionings. And he's also a Marxist writer. And so one of the things that he's, he's I think, also trying to show is that the body becomes commodified. It becomes a, a commodity. I find this very effective. I don't think yeah. you need... It's effective because it doesn't use any language. It's really just decontextualizing some of these paintings and some of these advertisements. So taking them out of the museum or taking them out of the magazine or off the television screen and putting them next to one another and they start to communicate with one another on their own. They don't really need us to do that. It's just (laughs) in some ways just moving them around and putting them in a different area. That to me is much more effective than somebody sort of dictating what meaning arises. It allows us to do that. Totally. Okay, so I have like I have like two questions. I kind of want to stick them together somehow. Yeah. So I'm gonna just freestyle it. See what happens. That's fine. So in your class, you you talk about the text and image, and you explore this. And here at Naropa, we have like a contemplative model of education. And I'm curious with the like contemplative model and with the like eager minds and this this mm-hmm. topic. How do you extract a deeper meaning through these modalities? How do you extract, Mm -hmm. you know, when you're like staring at a picture and a text in a contemplative lens, how can you see more of it than just like if you were to look in a comic or something? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I think, well, looking at images has always been, I think, a part of devotional practices for one, and contemplative practices. And on the other hand, I think there have been contemplative practices or religious practices that are very opposed to looking at images. So to me, that suggests that images have this value and significance. So it's not a totally new concept. And I think the images also have this mirroring effect, just as anything is that we look at or that we pay attention to. I think it can actually be a process of coming to be self-aware to look at something. I think that looking at something closely also requires time and patience and duration, which is something that we don't do a lot in this culture. Um, So the classroom... And maybe even particularly the classroom at Naropa provides a space to do this, to look carefully, to self-examine, and to also do all of this without judgment. I don't think that it's that effective to look at an image with judgment. Although I sometimes just ask my students to get that out of the way, you know, yeah. what do you expect? How of does, this? how does one look at something without judgment though? Like, I mean, I don't think that you necessarily so, can. It's yeah. So hard. Yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. I mean, some things that can help that though, um, as I was talking about with John Berger is to extract an image from its context yeah. and that always can be really surprising. So you take, an advertisement and you take some element of that out of the advertisement and then you see something very differently. You see Mm -hmm. it in a different light. Um, So that's a way to do it. But I think also spending time with it. So 
there's a series called The Face. It's a it's a book series, and Ruth Ozeki. Yeah. Have you, yeah. are you familiar with this? Yeah. Yeah. So she stares at her face. I'm not sure for how long it. It's a <laughs> it's a very long time. I can't remember the mm-hmm. logistics of this, but she looks at her face in her in the mirror, and I've asked. I think it's like something like eight hours or something. I've asked students to do this with their own faces, where they just for not as long. I've asked them to do it for a couple hours. So in the process of looking, Ruth Ozeki is thinking about her family, thinking about different practices, artistic practice, Japanese artistic practices. She's thinking about her own life, her own writing. I think the same thing can happen with image where you just look at an image for an extended period of time. And what you start to see are not the composition of the image, but you start yeah. to see the colors, you start yeah. to see shape, you start to see shadow. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have like these sort of elemental aspects of an image and then it transforms into something else. And if you're sort of taking note of these things, you know, writing notes, reflecting, it actually can be very transformative. It doesn't just transform yeah. the image, but it also transforms <laughs> the person who's looking totally. at the image. Yeah, yeah. I I did this thing when I was younger where I would say a word over and over and yes, over. And yes. then there was a moment where it like literally made no sense to me. Yes. The word the, you just say the over and over. Right. What is it used? Like what? It's, it's just the a repetition. It just, it's a combining word. It just combines things together. And yes. I was like, I don't understand it anymore. What it is that? It starts to seem like another language. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in some ways, Andy Warhol did that with images uh-huh. where he would take a really well-known image like Marilyn Monroe's face and he would just repeat it over and over and over again. And so it starts to become somebody yeah. else, you know, all uh-huh. of the significance of this beautiful movie star starts to kind of degrade in some ways and it becomes a different image or the Campbell soup can instead of like (laughs) whatever it is on a whatever it represents to us when we see in a grocery store yeah it starts to become something else Mm. and in some ways now it has this totally entrenched meaning Andy Warhol and the (laughs) the factory but Mm -hmm. but yeah it's this idea of like repetition and duration can actually be Mm. really enlightening I think yeah yeah. So I have one more question yes. for you since, you know, so right now we're exploring the medium of audio, right? Yeah. So we we're, we're talking about text and image and obviously there's a relationship there between the, those two compositions. And I want to talk about like, is there anything you want to say about their sibling audio? Yeah. That's, <laughs> I mean, that's great. Cause audio can create a, a text or an image within your brain. Yes. And when we're talking about poetry, for instance, or any kind of lyricism, it is about audio. It's about the way something sounds. And sometimes one of the things that I think happens when you concentrate on text and image in literature, you know, or in a book, it becomes very much about the object, you know, it becomes about the page. Mm -hmm. And so I think one of the things that can sometimes wither away is the way that it sounds because we become so focused on the way something looks. But poetry and writing, I think, and lyricism are also about sound. So one of the ways that we've kind of done this in my class and that I like to do it is to bring in some like Kurt Schwitters who did a lot of like sound poetry and he would, you know, if you look at his page, it's actually very imagistic. There's a lot of like repeated letters and 
a lot of strange constructions. Yeah. Uh, but you can also hear him reading this. And mm. so the sound of that is, yeah. is also very strange. These words yeah. that don't seem like they're even pronounceable, he pronounces. <laughs> and so I like it when these three things are sort of happening simultaneously. Yeah. yeah. And there's this idea of me and you can read the same poem. Mm-hmm. But it, it's going to sound different. Yes. The reflection of our voice, the who we are behind it, and just yeah. how we read it is going to be different in the spacing between words. And so it could create a different image in people's minds. Mm-hmm. That could be a fun little practice. Everyone yes. read the same thing and see what comes up for you. Yeah, it's bringing the body. I like that example because it's bringing the body back into the poem, and which is what I, I mean, that's another somatic practice mm-hmm. altogether is yeah. to bring the body back in and to feel. <laughs> it and to have it perform and to do it you know to Mm -hmm. do the praxis of the poem yeah awesome so this was really fun i really appreciate you speaking with us today (laughs) thank you it was like a really fun topic to explore and just thank you for uh well thanks for having me yeah great so that was jalyn chaplin to the podcast she is an assistant professor and the director in the mfa creative writing so i'd like to thank her again thank you thank you On behalf of the Naropa community, thank you for listening to Mindful You, the official podcast of Naropa University. Check us out at www.naropa.edu or follow us on social media for more updates.